Hello, and welcome to the science and the story behind Omega-3, a podcast brought to you by Wiley Companies, where we explore one of the most researched nutrients on the planet. Listen in as global Omega-3 experts and researchers translate the science, reveal personal insights, and share their stories of discovery while navigating the sea of Omega-3 science. Thanks for joining us today. Now here's your host, Greg Lindsay. So we welcome to the program, Dr. Doug Bebas. Dr. Bebas, thank you so much for joining us today. We invited you here to talk about your esteemed mentor, Dr. Ralph Holman. In a future episode, I want to look into more about your career. But today, I I understand you started as Dr. Holman's student and eventually came to manage his laboratory. Can you tell us how you met Dr. Holman and then what your first memory of meeting him was? Yeah, uh, great question. Thanks so much for allowing me to talk about Dr. Holman, one of my absolute all-time favorite people. I was a teenager, actually, in the mid-80s, and I had a uh, scholarship to, as a gifted kid, I guess, to, to work uh, in a local laboratory. So I got randomly placed into this guy named Ralph Holman's lab and uh, had no idea who he was. And I think I had like my football jersey on, being cool for the first day of <laughs> my job as a 15-year-old. And so I met Dr. Holman there. And I remember the first time I met him, I was trying to use like a nitrogen evaporator or something in the laboratory and I couldn't quite get it. So I went back to his office, knocked on the door and this very soft-spoken kind man came out and helped me figure out how to turn on the uh, nitrogen evaporator. (laughs) So, so that was really the first time that I met Dr. Holman. So so Dr. Bebas, can you tell us who was Ralph Holman? Yeah, Ralph Holman uh, was, uh, you know, the, the headline you'd see on Wiki would be something like a famous American biochemist. You know, Ralph Holman was really a pioneer, uh, one of the great pioneers in nutritional research that emulated from, you know, the 1940s era into the 1970s, 80s era. And Ralph grew up in Minnesota, he grew up in Minneapolis. Ralph's dad drove a, uh, a trolley car in Minneapolis. They grew up during the Great Depression. So uh, Ralph talked a lot about never having money and and not having enough money to go to college, certainly. But uh, Ralph was, Ralph's story is really the story of the American dream about somebody that went from really a, a, a struggle to, to fame in terms of success. And Ralph later went on, obviously, to, to be a, a great biochemist. But uh, you know, long and short, some of the significant things, he was the guy that named Omega-3 and, and, and did a lot of the functional basic pathophysiology about omega-3 fatty acids at that time. Can you tell us what were the main discoveries of his, I guess, lifelong program at the University of Minnesota? Yeah, so Ralph was one of the first people in his team to characterize EPA and DHA. They didn't have GCs or mass specs at the time, but they used a technique called alkaline isomerization, and they had physical readouts or traces that would capture absorption of what they determined were molecules with five double bonds and six double bonds and three double bonds. And they later used that technology, this would have been in the 50s, to determine the conversion of 18,3 omega-3 from plant-based sources to EPA and DHA. And that was one of his fundamental uh, discoveries. 
Uh, Ralph also discovered the competition between omega-6 and omega-3 for the elongase desaturase enzymes. And obviously, a lot of things happened. Once they got GCs, they developed GC technology that allowed them to actually measure EPA and DHA. And at the time, it was in the, in the early 1970s. Dr. Yorm Dyerberg was uh, making his discoveries on these fascinating folks in Greenland who ate a whole lot of fat but didn't die from cardiovascular disease. I know Yorn came to the lab, and so we have these peaks uh, on our chromatograms, but we can't quite figure out you know, what those peaks are. And Ralph, I think, was working. Maybe Bill Christie was in the laboratory at the time. Bill's probably one of the best lipid analytic chemists in the world. And, and they said, no, these are EPA and DHA. So that was the basis. But I know Ralph. Uh, Ralph's family is from Sweden originally, so him and Jorn shared some Nordic uh, some Nordic similarities and got along greatly. But, um, you know, further along the line, Ralph also is in 1984, he had a paper uh, hatch uh, at all, and, and they definitively determined that alpha linolenic acid was essential at that time. So George uh, Burr and Mildred Burr worked with essential fatty acid deficient animals, and in the late 20s, they were the ones that figured out that omega-6 and omega-3 were essential, but because linseed oil they used as the omega-3 component, because linseed oil contained bits of linoleic acid, uh, it wasn't uh, definitively proven, I guess, that 18.3 was the curative factor or the essential nutrient at that time. So so the Hatch paper from the 80s was about a girl that uh, had a gunshot wound, and she was maintained on parenteral nutrition with just linoleic acid as the essential fat. And, um, and so this girl, over time, was a growing kid, you know, and she, over time, she started to develop episodic paralysis and visual problems and cognitive problems, and they sent a blood sample to Ralph Holman's lab, U of Minnesota, and uh, she had really, really low levels of omega-3, so they, they fed back, uh, I think, soybean oil into her emulsion or a source of 18-3 omega-3, and all those symptoms resolved, so that's a classic clinical case of, of uh, omega-3 deficiency, but, uh, but that was a really profound study at the time and that put omega-3 on the map in terms of essentiality so but uh, yeah he other things um looked at the dynamics of omega-3 during pregnancy looked at the uh, levels of of omega-6 and omega-3 during the span of a pregnancy from first trimester to second trimester to third trimester and in third trimester you see a, a big deficit of dha in studies they did back in the 80s and 90s and i was part of some of those studies but um, so the, the need for DHA throughout pregnancy was was partly established um, in some of the work that Ralph did in his lab. So we, our uh, laboratory was about forty minutes from the Mayo Clinic, so we had a whole lot of access to um, collaborative efforts with the Mayo Clinic and a lot of clinical cases over the years. And um, so Ralph really became interested in the economy of omega six and omega three in living systems and in diets, and um, he was one of the first people to feed. Fish oil in the 80s when I was there, we, we got fish oil from Zapata Haney, uh, which is now uh, Omega Protein on the East Coast. And it, the fish oil had like visible solids in it. And it just it really had a strong smell. <laughs> so we would uh, we would uh, feed people uh, doses of that and then look at, you know, elongation of the EPA and DHA and blood lipids and then looked at cholesterol levels, effects on cholesterol. But uh, one of our German subjects he would always drink uh, whiskey or brandy afterwards uh, uh, because of the taste was was pretty foul but uh, 
And we get a lot of complaints about the smell of fish throughout the building. But uh, that was the state of the art back in the day. So we were really grateful just to have access to fish oil. And of course, that's changed dramatically since that time. So then we you know, went on to uh, look at uh, different diseases and sick people. I don't know. The, the list was probably 60 or 80 different disease types. We'd get 20 to 100 samples per malady, and, and he would establish these graphics looking at you know, increases or decreases in, in omega-3 and omega-6. And the, the take-home was, you know, the illness really decreased omega-3 and omega-6 status. Whether or not that was a cause or function of the disease uh, was, was uh, you know, in question. But, but certainly being sick was a stress on your essential fatty acid status. And then kind of the next phase of his research, we went on and looked um, a lot of populational studies around the world, looking at different populations and different foods they ate, looking at the omega-3 and omega-6 levels. And certainly, um, you know, people in Nordic countries eating fish had really high levels. Uh, you know, their total omega-3 score, omega-3 in their blood is like 15%. They had high levels in America. We were at, you know, 3 or 4%, uh, pretty low. But, uh, but we did studies in, you know, from Vladivostok, Russia, looking at pregnant moms and offsprings. And those, those ladies had... Uh, uh, much, much higher levels of DHA than our American moms. From We had a cohort from Mayo and then a cohort from, from Utah as well. But, but uh, yeah, interesting things. Uh, we looked at populations in Logos, Nigeria as well. They, had, uh, you know, they weren't eating a whole lot of fish, but they were eating a lot of sources of 18.3 omega-3, and they had uh, relatively high levels of long-chain omega-3. But, uh, it, was, uh, it was fun science. You know, people would send us tubes from all over the world and samples from all over the world. And the Vladivostok, Russia study, we actually smuggled the supplies out of Seattle. We tried to send them with DHL and, and uh, they got to Moscow and we had a request for a $10,000 signing check, something like that. You know? Oh my and gosh. Was another payoff. Yeah. So, uh, so a creative Russian friend of mine said, you know, we used to send things through the port of Seattle and for $5 a kilogram, they'll take it to wherever you want. So we had boxes of test tubes and things needed for, for those studies. But uh, so good times, good memories. Um, and uh, really, you know, a lot of his research pointed the finger that Americans just don't eat enough omega-3 and, and it uh, causes uh, risk factor for a lot of diseases. So uh, Ralph was a particularly interested in DHA. And he had a quote that said, you know, your brain is full of DHA and and it helps us see the beauty of life and not having adequate amounts of DHA, you know, filtered, filtered that beauty. So. And then he also, there was a Holman Omega-3 test. Is that right? Yeah. We, so we spent a lot of time looking at Omega-3 status and we would get people calling us and saying, can you, can you measure my blood for Omega-3? So he and I both worked on, on uh, developing this. And then, you know, we were doing, we were originally doing blood draws, but people had to go to the hospital and get a blood draw and uh, then ship it to us. So, you know, by the time a sample got to us, it cost probably two, three hundred dollars at least in, wow. in fees for them. And, uh, and then, uh, then we would measure and report back to them. But, but so we started working with finger stick technology in the early 90s. And, and that was an improvement. And, and all along, you know, the technology and gas chromatography was improving to the point where you could really accurately detect things down to, to micromolar or microgram levels. So we were good at measuring small amounts of things accurately, 
and then uh, using small samples to look at things accurately. But um, and then we went to went to cards. Uh, neonatal testing was using blood spot cards and dry blood spot technology. And we, uh, along with uh, several other groups at the time, we we figured out how to stabilize our system, and, and now we use blood spot cards for all kinds of things. So uh, we've had blood spot cards come. We were doing studies in turtles coming from Madagascar. Wow. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so uh, professional soccer players in Europe, uh, all over the place. But, uh, yeah, so the dry blood spot technology is, is really wonderful for for uh, transmitting, collecting samples and giving samples. We've recently done uh, breast milk studies in Guatemala, and so the cards can be used to go out into the fields and into the mountain mountainous areas and collect samples and then bring them back into uh, larger cities and then return samples that way. So a lot of fun. Well, you know, you rattled off just so many amazing discoveries. When did all of this work? I guess, I guess between which years did all of this work take place? Yeah. So, you know, Ralph, Ralph finished uh, his PhD in the mid forties and he uh, enlisted in the military, but he had flat feet or some, something that excluded him from, from, from doing that. And, uh, so a lot of this research, when he was a young man, was in the 50s and 60s. Kind of, that was the fundamental stuff of discovering uh, different isomers and elongation and desaturation. And then, uh, you know, the disease work uh, and the pregnancy work started in the in probably the late 70s, early 80s in there, and then went into the 90s. And then populational studies were, were um, early 90s into, into the 2000s. So I think Ralph kind of officially hung it up, laboratory life up around uh, 2002, 2003, somewhere in there. But, uh, but he never stopped working, though. He, he, he was always writing and publishing papers. And, and Ralph, uh, you know, he loved Omega-3, uh, and he was just so upset that it didn't you – know, he said, people got to eat this nutrient. <laughs> it's really important. And, and he was uh, so frustrated that it wasn't happening. So I got to – call one day or an email with a picture from our local Hy-Vee grocery store. And it, he was so proud. It had salmon and it's a great source of omega-3. <laughs> and it's, uh, this would have been in the 1990 timeframe. But uh, uh, and he eventually wrote a paper called The uh, Slow Discovery of the Importance of Omega-3. And it was kind of his rant about how uh, you know, we've known all these wonderful things about omega-3 fats and yet nobody was acting on this information. So the, you know, the truth is, is that changes in dietary guidelines and stuff are often really slow and so like what you hear so far make sure you never miss a show by clicking the subscribe button now this podcast is made possible by listeners like you thank you for your support now back to the show You mentioned, Dr. Bebus, earlier that Dr. Holman actually named omega-3s. So why omega and why three? Yeah, so Ralph, Ralph, um, and these are some of the tidbits. You know, I was around Ralph a lot every day, and I you know, just knew him as a really, really nice guy and very compassionate mentor. But, but then I started discovering all these tidbits, like, oh, I'm a National Academy of Science member, and oh, Oh yeah, I named those omega three fats. <laughs> he did. <laughs> so he, uh, in the early sixties, I guess it was the Delta system that was used. 
that counted from the carboxylic acid end of the molecule. And, and delta is still used today, but every time a fatty acid would elongate uh, the saturate, it would add a double bond or a, it would have a double bond or carbon, and that numbering system would change. So he wanted to name fatty acids from the tail end or the methyl end of the molecule where where that end of the molecule never changed. So uh, he needed a word for the term end. And Ralph said, I learned about this in, in Sunday school in 1924, 1919. And so I'm the Alpha and I'm the Omega. I'm the beginning and I'm the end. So from the Bible. Uh, so kind of cool. And, um, and of course, there's a lot of, you know, in a, in a lot of religions, and especially Christianity, there's a lot of references to fish and the importance of fish as a food in, in uh, Christianity. But, but, uh, so that's where omega came from. And the three is the three carbons in. It's the distance to the first double bond. So the omega-3, the first double bond occurs three carbons in. And the omega-6 occurs six double bonds in. Omega-9, nine, nine, uh, nine carbons in. So, And that terminal tail portion never changes in terms of its structure. So it's a, a familial trait, if you will, that can be followed. So that's where it came from. Uh, it was a paper published. They used it in a paper in the... Uh, 1963 that described the competitive nature of omega-6 and omega-3 and he has a little sidebar that says you know here's this new nomenclature by the way that we're using in this paper that's fascinating so yeah, that, yeah. what we use today was just something that uh, he put together that's that's fantastic yeah, oh. just uh just, I just needed a solution that's kind of how ralph was throughout his life he he solved problems he didn't necessarily look for an easy way out or hire somebody or do it. He usually just did it himself. So, so can kind of ties in with his work. Do you know why Dr. Holman studied lipids instead of maybe protein or carbohydrates? Yeah. So in that period of time, you know, Ralph started studying actually carbohydrates at the university of Minnesota and uh, carbohydrates were the, you know, the, the bomb at the time and their metabolism and what they were in, and uh, Ralph was studying metabolism of a sugar in radishes, and he would get heavy carbon from heavy sugars with C13 from uh, uh, Al Nier's lab at the University of Minnesota. Al Nier worked with mass specs, early mass specs, and um, looked at radioisotopes and things like that. And Ralph was getting sources of that every day for his radish plants. He would go, essentially, it was a, they would filter off. Uh, carbon dioxide, I'm sorry, from uh, a super long chromatographic tube that would be four stories high in a building. So so heavy heavy air, if you will, would, would filter to the bottom and they would isolate that. So, But uh, Ralph walked in the lab one day and everything was dark uh, in Nier's lab. And uh, he was, oh, what's going on? Because it was a, one of those seven-day-a-week kind of labs. And he said all the instruments were off and everything was off. And, uh, and so Ralph soon found out that El Nier and his group was requisitioned for the Manhattan Project to work on the nuclear bombs. So they were absconded in the middle of the night. They were taken, you know, uh, very secretive. Uh, the, and uh, so Ralph was a young man. You know, Ralph had, uh, uh, Ralph struggled to get to college financially. And, and uh, you know, people at Bethel University helped him financially with a job to make it there. So he was, he was really, Stressed, and then uh, he met. Um, uh, he got an offer to work on the uh, essential fats of George and Milder Burr. He said, oh, "I don't want to work on fats; they're boring, you know." <laughs> and, but it was, uh, you know, it was really 
undiscovered material there and the discovery of essential fats uh, was right about that same time. So, uh, and George Berg turned out to be uh, a big feature in Ralph Holman's life and a, an exceptional human being, just like Ralph was to me and countless other postdocs and, and faculty members. And Ralph had a picture of George Burr on his desk for the rest of his life uh, after after his graduate school time there. But but Ralph began working with George and Mildred Burr, and uh, they, uh, they worked on aspects of essential fats at that time. So uh, that would have been in the early 40s, and that launched his career. He went to Texas, I think, uh, for a little bit. He actually went on a postdoc to the Karolinska Institute in Sweden, and um uh, he crystallized lipoxygenase while he was there. So he worked with Sumi Bergstrom, and I'm blanking the name of the other Nobel laureate that he worked with. I apologize about that. But uh, but back in those days, you didn't take an airplane to Europe. You took a boat. <laughs> so uh, I think it was 14 days across the ocean or 11 days, something like that. So I have, he gave me his travel trunk, and it has uh, – Stickers all over at the big wooden trunk where people would put their stuff. So we have that in the farm, the laboratory, kind of as a memory oh, great. of Dr. Holman. Obviously, he was your mentor. Can you tell us you know, what, what are other things you'd like us to know about Dr. Holman? Yeah, Ralph, just just a, a really good guy, unassuming. Ralph lived uh, very simply. And I, I think growing up in the depression and, and uh, Ralph, you know, knew the value of a dollar because he, you know, he's have dollars. So that was, um, you know, he just lived a very simplistic life. He enjoyed uh, eating fish every day. He was proud of the fact that he ate two cans of sardines every day uh, with his lunch. And um, sometimes he would spice it up with sardines and tomato sauce or mustard sauce. But, but uh, that was his lunch. And he, he loved his wife immensely, Carla Holman. He, he talked about her all the time and, and they just had this magical relationship. And, and Carla was a graduate of Rutgers. Uh, Carla had a master's in library science. And for a, a woman at that time, that was really a great achievement. But uh, they worked well together. Um, they had a great son, uh, Ted, uh, who still lives in the Minnesota, Minneapolis area. But, uh, but Carla was always very patient with Ralph. Ralph worked at night. He worked in the day. He was always working uh, on writing papers and, and things like that. But Carla got sick and Ralph spent every day, as you'd expect, with her in the, in the nursing home. And then uh, Carla eventually passed away. Ralph would continue to go to the nursing home, Sacred Heart Nursing Home in Austin, Minnesota, every day to visit people because he said some of these people just don't have anybody. He, he really felt a strong sense of compassion uh, to, to, to just smile and say hello to a, a lot of people every day. So uh, and that was really kind of the person Ralph was. was um, you know, science was part of his life, a big part of his life, but he didn't have a, any kind of ego or, or um, uh, behavior, you know, indicative of, of uh, a lot of success sometimes that people have. And, and Ralph, um, Ralph drove a regular car, you know, and lived in a house with maybe, I don't know, thousand square feet on the main floor. He built a, he loved orchids. So he grew, um, uh, he had a couple hundred orchid plants from all over the world. And he, he grew a, he, he built a greenhouse in the back of his house so, uh, that had just amazing plants in it. And we actually studied the uh, fragrances coming off of orchids. But, uh, yeah, that was Ralph, just a solid guy. And then um, Ralph was financially very successful, and Bethel University gave him a uh, start to his college career. And I think they made it free. He worked as a janitor to pay it. And then uh, 
so the uh, Ralph was very grateful. He said, "I would have never made it without Bethel's help." So, so he gave all of his money, you know, most of his money and assets to Bethel University. So now there's scholarship programs for the great kids that go to school there to go to science meetings, and there's a Ralph Holman Laboratory, part of a building named after him. And, uh, so, so his legacy uh, goes on with the people that gave him a chance. Do you think that he understood the value of his work and contribution upon his death? Yeah, it's a great question. I, you know, I think he did. Um, Ralph had friends all over the world, you know, but he didn't have a ton of friends locally outside of his church, obviously. But, but uh, I think that just, I always thought about that, you know, but his, his social ecosystem was, was spanned countries, you know, from his involvement in science and, uh, and Ralph was a National Academy of Science member, and uh, uh, which is prestigious, is maybe fifteen hundred or so at the time across the world. And but uh, you know, he knew he had done great things, but it was he was more concerned about making sure people ate omega three fats and got the right kind of nutrition, and, and uh, you know, and, and tried to reduce suffrage and, and human suffering by eating diets that were adequate and, and healthy in omega three fats. We'll dig into this more on a, on another program where we talk about the great work that, that you're doing. But if you can just kind of sum up the impact he had on your professional life or maybe personal life, both early on and then as you've gravitated through your illustrious career. Yeah. You know, I think I learned the most about just being a good person for mouth and, uh, and using science as a tool to help people. And uh, obviously I learned a lot of, great things in the lab, analytical techniques. And, and I was, I was so lucky, you know, my mom pushed me to <laughs> take this position of this in the mid eighties as a, as a teenager to take this position. I'm like, I don't want to work in the lab. You know, I don't know anything about this. And she was just do it. But uh, that was, you know, meeting Ralph was the, the lottery ticket for me. And, uh, and having two amazing parents was a lottery ticket for me as well. But uh, it, it really opened a lot of doors and, and acceptance and, and I realized how much Ralph was liked and cared about like so many people in the, the fatty acid community so you know, that was for me it was uh, it's great so, and, uh, so I live by a lot of those tenets today that I learned from Ralph Holman well, what a fascinating tribute to your mentor and uh, I want to thank you so much for being on our program today to talk about Dr. Holman's work and, and talk about him so people would know a little bit more about him both professionally and personally. I'm excited to have you back to talk about some of your great work that you're doing. So would you be kind enough to come back here maybe in the fall and, and talk about some of your work? Oh yeah, absolutely. Love to. Yeah, lo- looking forward to that. I want to thank you again today. And, and I want to thank our, our growing listener base uh, for joining the program today. And as always, be healthy, be well, and fight the good fight. This has been the science and the story behind Omega-3. Thanks to our sponsor, Wiley Companies. You can find them and more information about our show at wileyco.com slash podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time.
Any statements on this podcast are the opinion of the scientific guest and or author and have not yet been evaluated by the FDA. The information we may provide to you is designed for educational purposes only is not intended to be a substitute for informed medical advice or care. This information should not be used to diagnose, treat, or prevent any health issues or conditions without consulting a healthcare professional. If you are experiencing a health issue or condition, we suggest you consult with your healthcare professional. 